Thank you, Andrew. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Josh. Uh, some of you probably know. I'm a member of the teaching team at the St. John Vineyard, and uh, it's always a pleasure to come and get to speak. Um, uh, and it, it's always something that is, it's always challenging. It's always really difficult. And this week was kind of no different, which is kind of funny because I, I, like, I love Genesis. We're going to be looking at the first, at the two, second and third chapter of Genesis. And, uh, you know, I've studied it a lot. I've spent a lot of time reading it. I've read it in different languages. I've kind of written papers on it. And yet, it still confronts me. And every time I encounter it, and as I was wrestling through it and to figure out, well, what, what does God want to say through it? It was, it was really difficult still. Um, and I think, you know, that's inevitable, you know, if we believe that Scripture is where we encounter ultimate reality, or rather that's what points us to God who is the ultimate reality, then, then of course it's going to be difficult. And no matter how much you learn or study it, um, God still kind of pushes us and draws us um, through his, his Scripture. So I had, I had actually kind of prepared a sermon um, and I decided, I think, that instead of doing the sermon, that I'm just going to kind of walk through the passage, and we're going to kind of play it by, a little bit by ear and let see what the Holy Spirit kind of draws out as we go through. Um, and partly was, I, I just struggled to kind of, the, the second and third chapter, so it's, these are probably chapters that all of us have read many, many times, right? So it's the, um, something's called the second creation account is in, the second chapter where God, you know, forms man and, you know, sets him in the garden. And then the third chapter is, of course, what's commonly called the fall. Um, it's where, you know, humans sin and sin is introduced into the world. So we've probably read these or heard these or heard reference to these, I mean, perhaps hundreds of times. Um, And certainly, I mean, for me, no different. I've, I've heard them and kind of seen them many times. So then you kind of, when you read them, you kind of think, it's not a great story. or it's, It doesn't end very well, right? You kind of, we, we don't really come out looking terribly well. Um, you kind of see the frailty of humans. Um, I certainly identify with, um, they believe lies about who God is and about who they are. Yeah, so let's jump into the passage um, and we'll work through it. I'll work through kind of the different sections of it. We're going to read it in the NIV and I'll point out kind of some interesting things as we go uh, and then we'll see, I think, where, hopefully where God will take it. We'll see. So we're going to start in uh, verse 4. Um, and I'll read through it and I'll kind of pause periodically and kind of maybe point out some things that are kind of, I think, interesting about it. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what the passage brings out for us. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. It talks about formed. It's the word for a potter, 
it's literally the word used for a potter. So you can imagine it's this care that a potter takes. I mean, potters are incredible how they can kind of shape this clay and kind of break it down, then bring it back up and smooth out the imperfections. And then, you know, with like a sharp stick, they'll point in and put that ridge that will hold the, the lid. That's the word that is used here for how God has created and formed in, with great intent. It's not random the creation of a pot. Here it's saying it's not random God creating man. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It run, runs along the east side of Asher. That's Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. I think it's interesting that the work is part of who we are. It's part of how we're intentionally designed to be. It's a part of life. Um, it's part of how God intended us to be. To work, work the earth, and also to care for it, though. There's a, to guard it and to, to work in it. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. So again, there's like that idea of that we're co-workers with God. It's significant to kind of, you know, to think of, you know, man coming, you know, God bringing, say, a hippopotamus to, before man, and then man saying... I'm going to call it a hippopotamus. God's like, well, all right, yeah, okay, okay, that's fine. Good, good name, good name. Or he brings a giraffe, you know, kind of this. I'm going to call it a giraffe, a giraffe, a giraffe. But, you know, naming in the ancient world is really significant. Naming is kind of a symbolic thing of kind of giving its purpose, giving it its role. So it's really interesting that that's how humans are described, is kind of having this, this really sort of co-care of the world with God. Careful not to keep losing my place here. Oh, okay, 20. Thank you. Yeah. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So the first, the, the second chapter here, um, the first part of what we're going to look at, um, what I get out of it as I read it is the sense of relationship. And for the ancient Hebrews, that was really um, an important part of how they viewed the world. People lived in community. You lived in family. Relationships were really important. And you found your place from where you sat in your family, where you sat in relationship with, with the others around you. So I think we see that, you know, nature is, a, you know, the man's relationship with nature at this point is, it's a good relationship. Man cares for nature. And nature's not scary. Nature provides. So there's a sense of food is easily come, come upon from nature. There's not the sense of, uh, and when you think about the ancient world, like, uh, you know, we were talking about it in the Bible study last week, you know, we live very safe lives. We don't go outside and expect to come across a lion. They expected to come across lions, which is why David kills lions to protect the sheep. It's a very different reality about how dangerous nature is. Like, if, if we get an infection, we go to the doctor, and then we're healed from the infection because we have antibiotics. You know, they didn't have that, you know, 80 years ago, uh, 90 years ago, about that range. So, it's a dangerous place in the ancient world. But that's, what we see here is actually nature and mankind, humankind, working in, in harmony. So the relationship there is, um, is healthy and wholesome and I think productive for both nature and for humankind. We also see um, humankind's relationship with God. Um, humankind, we'll see it especially in the next section when it talks about you know, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, you know, with his creation, that God and humankind are in intimate relationship. Uh, think about like the working relationship they have. They're side by side in creation. There's a wholesomeness to that, to the relationship that they have. Um, the Jews talk, like the idea of shalom. Shalom is, you know, how they would say hello, but actually shalom is, and it means peace, but it, it means rightness of relationship across the different people and parties involved. It's, it's more of a, it's a broader idea. So you have this sense of shalom coming out of this, this chapter two. Um, you see man's relationship with work. Work is not burdensome. Work is hard. <laughs> I find work hard. There are days that I find it really hard and I have to be like, no, you just got to buckle down and focus and get it done. And there's, that's just the way it is. But here, work is something that happens in partnership with God. And then finally, the relationship between men and women is one of oneness. They're the same flesh. In the previous chapter, in chapter 1, you know, male and female are both created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, both of them. And in chapter 1, it repeats it. It really is pretty emphatic. And, okay, the man in this story is kind of created first, and then the woman's created, but... There's a recognition of oneness. There's not a power play involved. There's not um, tension there um, in the story. And then also, I think humankind's relationship with themselves. 
is one that is also shalom. They're naked and they're not ashamed. They are able to be holy themselves without feeling shame for who they are. Shame is, I think, a really, really human characteristic, but we don't see that here. It calls it out specifically that they're not ashamed. And then things go a little south. They go, they get a little, a little worse. But I think this first chapter is important because I think it shows, you know, there's a reason that it's at the beginning of both our Bible and the Hebrew Bible. There's a reason why this is how it starts. There's a reason why this is, is what's, uh, it's given so, some, somewhat a kind of pride of place, that this is the intent for creation. So that should be both, I think, a source of solace, that this isn't, and I think also accounts for the goodness we see in the world, um, which we also see in chapter one that Katie Lynn unpacked last week, um, that fundamentally creation and humanity is intended for good, are intended to live well together, in peace together, in shalom together. But, of course, the reality is that we see um, people not living in peace, people oppressing other people. We see wars and rumors of wars. We see destruction of our natural habitats. We see um, people oppressing other people, taking advantage of other people. We have, obviously, a slightly messed up perspective on work, I think. It never, we never really, really love it. If you're someone who loves your job, that's great. Um, but that is not the experience of a lot of people. But still, this is what's intended, I think. So let's move on to chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Things start to go kind of pear-shaped. Uh, no pun intended for the fruit that's in the garden. 
what kind of happens here? I think it starts with believing some lies. There's some interesting lies, and, and this passage has been misused. It has been used to, um, in the same way that the Jews are blamed for the death of Christ, when actually it's our sinfulness that should be blamed for the death of Christ, this passage has been used to say that women are the cause of the ills in the world, that theologically they're lesser. Uh, but that's, that's untrue. That's a lie. What's interesting is that the man should have known better because God told him. What's interesting is that the woman, she actually, when she says that um, God said, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die, that's not what God said. He said, you should need it and then you'll die. Touching it's fine. So that means something wasn't communicated to her, which means that men are just as complicit because God told Adam about it. So, and he didn't tell Eve accurately. But, I mean, fundamentally, I think you're correct, right? Like, that is the, they're deceived, and then they do what they shouldn't do. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely, they allow themselves to believe lies. They allow themselves to be deceived. And part of that deceit is not knowing what God really said. So, there's some complicit, you know, the, the man is kind of complicit in that. Um, I think they also believe some wrong things about God. So, I think they begin to doubt that God actually has their best interests at heart. They think God is hiding something. You know, God knows your eyes will be opened. I mean, your eyes are kind of closed. He's hiding something from you. He doesn't have your best intentions at heart. The other thing I think they believe is that they can become like gods, that they can take the place of God, that God is not sufficient. God doesn't know what he's doing for them. So they believe a lie and they make a choice to disobey God. They make a choice to, you know, do what he had expressly said not to. Uh, And then things change fundamentally, I think, in their relationship to the world around them and the people around them. And they change really drastically, really quickly. So as soon as they eat of it, they realize that they're naked. There's a realization that there's, you know, there's shame about nakedness. There's this change that happens in how they're even perceiving themselves fundamentally. It's almost like they forget that they're, they were formed by the potter in the first place. They forget that almost immediately. And then when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, they hide themselves from God. And it says in the Hebrew, I, I like the term it uses, it says they... They hide from the face of God. They can't, they're almost like they can't look God in the face any longer. It alters their relationship with God. It breaks the intimacy with God. They're, they're no longer comfortable to just be in his presence like they were in the second chapter, just there as God would walk in the cool of the day. They're scared of God. And not fear of God in the sense of Proverbs, I think, where out of a respect for God, 
it's, it's actually a fear of retribution, a fear of exposure perhaps to God. And then we see very quickly that the relationship between male and female breaks down as well. And immediately Adam blames Eve. Oh, the woman gave it to me, but also he says, the woman you gave me. He blames God for what he's done. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, it really, it really, it really is. Yeah, it's something, and you know, I think <laughs> any of us, you know, male or female, I think would, um, you can't look in yourself and not see the kind of the darkness that's there, right? The brokenness that we have. So uh, it's it's a bit. It's a big step to say, oh, no, I'm not to blame in this passage. So, yeah. So let's continue on uh, with the next, uh, next part of it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers and He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the other thing that breaks then is our relationship to nature. Nature becomes unfriendly. The serpent becomes, there's enmity between the serpent and humans, Uh, which I think also is symbolic for kind of more broadly the relationship between nature breaks down and also the relationship with work breaks down as well. I think what is important to notice is um, this is often called the curse and it's often thought, you often think of like, well, kind of men and women are kind of cursed in it, but they're not. Quite specifically, it's only the snake and only the ground that are cursed. So humans are not cursed. And that's, actually, that's important because that's sometimes something that comes up when people are talking about this. The other thing is, is that this is, not, this is not God saying this is how it will be and this is, what I'm, but this is the role I'm now assigning to you. He's saying this is the natural consequence of sin. Sin is now introduced into the world and so the relationships between work and each other and between God are now broken. And that is just the natural consequence of sin, of selfish self-interest, of people interacting with each other. And because the, the verse of, you know, the, especially about the women, you know, kind of your desire being for your husband who will rule over you, um, that's not saying that that's how it's intended to be. Because from the second chapter, that's not how it's intended to be. So, in this passage, then we see that something breaks fundamentally. And so that's why I struggled as I kind of um, 
was reading it because it doesn't leave it on a very high note. You know, in the, the next little bit, you know, God will kind of clothe them, but they're ultimately exiled from the presence of God. And then there's this distance that is established between them and God. So what do we take from this? And this is, as I was praying, this is what I really struggled with. Was like, what's, what's the line to take? What's the, what does God want to say through this? What is, you know, what's, how do, you know, okay, to know at least that this isn't, the brokenness we see in the world is not how God intended it. That, I think, is a fundamental thing we can definitely lay hold of. That it's sin that has come into the world that has altered the relationships that we have with those around us. Fundamentally altered them. I think they're exiled from the direct presence of God. Uh, I mean, because they are kicked out of the garden completely. So just in terms of that, you know, and we still have, you know, we, we come and gather together and we, we worship and we can engage with God, but not in the way I think that it was originally intended, where it's uninterrupted. You know, I interrupt my intimacy with God all the time. You know, I get distracted by all kinds of things. So I think there's something fundamentally that changes. I think, yes, God still, God doesn't abandon the world and he doesn't abandon us. Certainly not. Uh, but something fundamentally changes. It's not the same level of intended intimacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And that would be kind of just looking at these chapters and not then where things go from here. And so actually what I settled on in the end was these chapters on their own, they don't, in a sense, make a lot of sense. Or they don't, they're really hard to kind of wrestle with just on their own. And I think we have to remember that this is the beginning of our story, um, but it's not the end of God's story. There's all of this where God comes and encounters, he chooses kind of a a family in the Middle East, a family really, a a nothing nation he calls it basically. He comes to them, he guides them, he delivers them from persecution, he sends his prophets, he speaks to them, he gives them a nation of their own and a king of their own. He um, has a temple so he can reside with them because he desires to be with them. And ultimately, I think you can only understand the second and third chapter, the garden and the taking from the tree, by looking at the garden and another tree in the New Testament. I think ultimately, it only makes sense if you think about the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus surrenders all that he is, and then the cross, where he takes all that he is in goodness and all that we are in evil and he breaks our sinful evil. It can only make sense for me if I kind of, I can't leave the story at the end of chapter 3. But of course, we don't leave the story at the end of chapter 3. And God doesn't leave the story at the end of chapter 3. So I think for me, that's kind of where I had to um, end up with it, was that... um, Yes, we're kind of living in a broken world, but God's story isn't done yet. And in fact, we know in Christ, he's, he's triumphed over the brokenness that starts here. 
That's when I think Paul talks about kind of the, you know, Jesus is the new Adam, and kind of where sin entered the world through one man and then was taken out um, by Christ. So I hope that um, that was useful. I wasn't um, exactly, I think, where I kind of thought to go, maybe. Um, I think in the end, um, it, this helps us, I think, wrestle with you know, both the deep goodness and deep brokenness we see in the world, and I think gives us hope then for where our story's going. So with that, why don't we pray, and we'll end there. Dear Lord, I thank you that you have invited us to be part of your story. I thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I thank you that even though we, we introduced sin into the world, um, you have redeemed us through your Son and brought us back into right relationship and are bringing us back into right relationship with you and with each other and with your creation and with the roles that you've assigned us from day to day. I pray that as we continue to look at how your story unfolds um, through the Old Testament and into the New, um, that you would speak to us and that you would be reminding us that your story is greater than we can possibly imagine. It's greater than the challenges we face and greater than our brokenness and greater than our sinfulness. And you are restoring the world to shalom. I pray that as we go out this week, you would let us be forces for, for good and for shalom with those around us, even and especially with those we don't like or who don't um, Maybe treat us well, give us wisdom to know how to speak life and speak wisdom into those situations. We thank you that you are a God who speaks, and we thank you that you are God and that we are not. Now go from this place in the assurance of the Father's love that he has made you holy and has commissioned you to bring his love to those around you. Amen.